Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Shellshocked. This week we'll be discussing the issue of denialism, a phenomenon that prevents people from accepting scientific or historical evidence as real. If you want some great everyday examples of this, check out this month's issue of National Geographic magazine entitled The War on Science. In it they discuss denial of climate change, evolution, the moon landing, vaccinations, and genetically modified foods, among other things. It's a great read. In today's show, we're going to have a slight deviation from the planned format. Normally, we'd begin with a conversation between my co-host Amanda DeVow and I where we discuss the week's topic. But we're going to forego that in favor of giving you the unedited version of the interview I recently conducted with a woman named Magda Brown. Magda is a survivor of the Holocaust, and as I'm sure many of you are aware, denial of the Holocaust is bigger than ever. The purpose of this interview was to provide our listeners with Magna's personal testimony of what happened in the concentration camps during World War II. We got that, and so much more. In fact, I found myself unable to decide where to edit down the recording. So after discussing this with Amanda, we finally decided to just leave it all in. So what you're about to hear is the full, unedited version of that half-hour interview. And after you hear it, I have a feeling you'll agree with our decision. So without further delay, let's start the show. This is Michael Shermer, and you're listening to Shellshocked, one of the few weird things that I can't explain people's interest in. Sitting here with me is one of the most delightful people I've had the pleasure of meeting, Magda Brown. Magda is a survivor of the Holocaust and was imprisoned in the notorious concentration camp known as Auschwitz, where well over one million people were murdered during Hitler's reign on homosexuals, gypsies, the mentally handicapped, and many others he considered undesirables, particularly Jews. Magda was later remanded to Allendorf, a work camp near Buchenwald from which she would later escape. Since the theme of this week's episode is denialism, it's especially important to me that we hear from Magda a first-hand account of what happened to her and millions of others during World War II, since, as many of you know, a growing number of people the world over now claim that it never even happened. So first of all, Magda, thank you for agreeing to meet with me and to share a bit of your story. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Maybe we could start with a brief summary of your first-hand account of what happened to you and your family back in your home country of Hungary in the 30s and 40s. First of all, I was born in Hungary and raised there. And the uh, Nazi occupation doesn't happen to Hungary until March of 1944. Now that's a long distance from 1933 till 44, whereas during that time frame, many of the Eastern European countries are occupied by the Nazis, and the the Jewish tragedy begins, and it's played out very effectively. Very simply, that there's a special unit of Nazi uh, soldiers whose main job is 
during the Second World War to handle the Jewish situation, which is called the Final Solution. And it plays out like this. First, this unit comes into the Jewish people's home. They move them out of into a ghetto, from a ghetto to a concentration camp, and thus the killing machine begins. So basically, the Holocaust was a premeditated, scientifically coordinated mass murder. In Hungary, although the, the Nazis are, the Hungarians are an ally to the Nazis, so, so the Nazis stay out of it, like I mentioned, until 1944, but from 38 to 44, many things are happening to the Jewish people in Hungary. Certainly, their life is considerably better than their fellow Jews in the other countries because they are still living in their own home. Up to a point they are able to practice their profession or have their businesses, but gradually many of these things are taken away and thus the loss of freedom begins. Very briefly, there are many anti-Jewish laws enacted in Congress in the Hungarian Parliament and you know a law has to be obeyed and uh, it, is, it is very crucial to the Jewish people. Then comes another law that deals with the professionals. Anyone who was employed in military, in uh, government services, such as a, a scientist, a physicist, uh, uh, a uh, physician, a, a journalist, pharmacist, from one day to the next, they receive the pink slip and they're out of a job. Now here we have to stop and, and belabor this point a little further because there was no such a thing as a welfare system. So that professor may have had a large family and the, uh, the number of the unemployed reached several thousand. So the Jewish community had to support these families. There were businesses taken away from you without any receipts and uh, there was a very crucial law and that dealt with the uh, the small businessman, the, the barber, the tailor, uh, and, and, and the dressmaker. They had to have a license to practice. All of a sudden the order came that they will not issue new license to these people. But these were really poor people eking out a living and now they could pra couldn't practice and couldn't make a living so these people became unemployed. You get less and less freedom, less and less privileges to, to do things and on the, and on top of it they have a horrendous dehumanizing effect which deals with the extensive propaganda. The propaganda was in the media, the propaganda was in the movies. Uh, the brainwashing of even decent people by creating the graffitis and describing the Jewish people the worst possible way. All this works gradually against these human beings. By life up till March 1944, was like the average teenagers, uh, normal schooling up to a point when they stopped, we weren't permitted to go to school any longer as Jews. And then 
in, in the spring of, of, of 44, the Nazi army literally walks into Hungary because being an allies with the Hungarians, there is no resistance, there's no gunshot, there's no fighting, they come in. And from that point on, they take over and with the extreme cooperation of the Hungarian military, the Hungarian police, the Hungarian government, and the, with the leadership of Adolf Eichmann, who was an expert in this field, they are able to move the people from their home ghetto Auschwitz in 51 days, uh, close to a half a million human beings. Now, if you think in terms of volume, I mean, an average little suburban community has 70, 80,000 people. Now, multiply this and visualize from one day to the next, you are ordered that the ghetto will be established. And now all the people from the outlying areas are concentrated into a ghetto, which is usually held in a big city. Once all the Jewish people are incarcerated in the ghetto, there is no longer an exit. So now this is an overcrowded condition and uh, lots and lots of atrocities are taking place. But I usually highlight two important parts of this incarceration. One I call the illegal robbery and the other one is the legal robbery. And uh, the Hungarian Nazi party was comprised of a bunch of young uneducated hoodlums who were paid off, who were riled up, and at 18, 20 year old really don't even know what they're doing, but but it's appealing to hate the Jews or push them around or kill them or whatever. So these young punks have total freedom to enter the ghetto and they walk into a home. Now the homes that were occupied by the, by the uh, new Jewish people were actually homes owned by Jews prior to the tragedies. So these were all well-established, well well-furnished homes. So these Nazi boys come in and they take any valuables their heart desire and they walk out. Why am I telling you this story? To make you understand that my generation goes back to five, fam five generations back living in this same general area. We were very patriotic Hungarians. Until this time the police was protecting me as well as any other citizen. Now the police looks the other way and you're robbed. That's it. Now I tell you about the legal robbery. Once we are in the ghetto for maybe a week or two, the order comes from the government that they will send in some clerks. We have to turn over all our cash our jewelry, our radios, and other valuables. Now here again, it's robbery, right? Big deal. But that's not the point here either. The cash they took from us pays the Hungarian railroad worker to ship us to our death. Life in the ghetto is horrendous in many areas. From the time we were locked in here, we had, there's no out, we can't go to a, to a doctor, we can't go to a pharmacy, none of, nothing. 
So even that doesn't last too long. Now we are moved out of the ghetto with a very, very small little overnight suitcase, maybe a three-day provision. And with that, we walk clear across town to the other part of, of the city to a brickyard. And one wonders, why in heaven's name did they move us to a brickyard? After all, there's absolutely nothing there. Bricks, open air. No toilet facilities, no kitchen facilities, nothing. But even that was very well concentrated, very well organized, because the brick, brickyard is adjacent to the railroad track. And on my 17th birthday, on June 11th, they shoved anywhere between 75 to 85 human beings in one cattle car. The capacity of a cattle car, if one would look inside, is maybe 20 people could sit down on the floor. They shoved us in, so that we were squashed together, slammed the door on us. The cattle car has just a tiny, tiny little window, and even that had a barbed wire across it. Condition within this boxcar is unbelievably stressful. There's no explanation or bigger words to find than horrible. In the psychology class in 101, you study all the different personalities. They were all there. There were people crying. There were people silent cursing, swearing, praying, all behavior, restless. I stood for three solid days in order to allow my parents to sit on the hard floor. It was horrendous because we really did not know where we going. Because when they closed the ghetto, we were told that we are going to be moved to another country because they need laborers. And here came the classic lie of the century. The families will stay together. Now under these horrendously dying, dying, dying conditions, uh, that is the key word, the families will stay together. That's all you have left. You walked out of your, ho out of your home, you never see anything, any of the belongings ever again. So, but at least you have your family. Also, politically, or historically, this is the spring of 1944. The Allies are ready to land at Normandy. So we are hoping the war has been going on for so many years that it is coming to an end. So we'll be taken to another country, do our work, come back, and life will resume. Unfortunately, it doesn't turn out that way. The journey in the boxcar is horrendous. One is the stress, one is the physical pain, but above all that is the lack of water. They, when we boarded the train, they put one little wash bucket of water in there and another bucket for toiletries. Well, that little bucket of water disappeared the first hour. It was never refilled. Thirst is a horrendous feeling because it is so overpowering you forget your physical pain, and the only thing you want is if I could only have a drop of water. Your whole mind focuses on that one idea. Your mouth is dry, your lips are parched, and that's all you can think of. The, the, the 
train is traveling a very slow pace. Sometimes they push us over to the side tracks because military trains are using the main tracks. And some people would look out the window and maybe to hand out a little cup for by people walking by, but nobody would come to give you a sip of water. We arrived to a, an unknown destination. The train stops and uh, some strange looking men open the doors and come aboard. These men wore striped uniforms, they looked very emaciated, and they spoke a different language. So, somehow or another during these conditions you learn to understand sign language. What they were trying to say was that get out of the boxcar but leave your belonging, the little meager belongings from home, and you will get it later. Later never comes. What they do with this material is the special unit of prisoners will go through the, the supply and if they find some valuables that is shipped to the fatherland. Now we are exiting the, the boxcar and there is a long ramp and there are thousands of people and here I give you details about that because a boxcar would hold maybe 80 but it would not be feasible if you had a large group to ship and it wouldn't pay to, to send out one car on a long journey like that. So they would couple together many of these boxcars, it could be 50-55 of them per transport. And I found out post-war that Hungary exported within the 51 days 147 transports into Auschwitz-Birkenau and uh, out of that 375,000 were killed immediately within that time frame. So we arrive here, the men are separated, that's the last time I see my father, and then the women are lined up, old people and children, and my aunt tells me, hold on to your mother so you won't lose each other, which was an excellent advice but it backfires. As we march forward, a group of Nazi officers signal to stop. And one officer comes forward, and there's no more talking. You are no longer a human being. You don't have a name. You, you're just a robot. The motion go to the right. And my mother is holding on to me, and she was a very, very young-looking 42-year-old. But we held on to each other, and that was enough for that officer to separate us and my mother is sent the other way and I don't know what is happening so I wave to her I will see you later unfortunately later never comes because what they have done when you see a, 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 a photo of Auschwitz entry you'll see a railroad track where the people are arriving from different countries about a year or so before we arrived to Auschwitz, the management realized that the crematoriums could not handle the influx of people to be killed fast enough. So they leveled off about five or seven little Polish villages surrounding Auschwitz because the crematoriums were located in that area. 
So what they have done, they have extended the railroad tracks. So the people who went the other way were back on the railroad track and directly to this location where the crematoriums are. And what they have done with these people, they have put them in a shower, they gave them a towel, they had attendants walking around, they had a hook on the wall with a number on it, and they would tell them, put your clothes here, remember the number, because that is where you will find your clothing. Now, ironically, when we were taken to the shower room, I will talk about it, that's a totally different project. But nevertheless, so these poor people are exhausted naturally, and uh, they figure they got to have a shower. How wonderful if you'll be refreshing after, who knows when we had a, a, a bath before that. From here, they crowd them into a large room, which pretended to look like a shower. They crowded in way above the amount of people. They slammed the door on them, and on the outside there were Nazi soldiers with gas masks on them, and they would climb a ladder holding Zyklon B gas, gas pallets in their hands. On the top of this shower complex there would be windows, and then they would open the window and throw the Cyclon B gas pellet in there, slam the window which was hermetically sealed, and thus the poor people would suffocate from lack of oxygen. And this is how they killed them in the crematorium. From here, the dead bodies were taken out by, by uh, prisoners, and their job was, a special unit job was, to remove all their gold filling, all their gold bridges from the mouth, and that would be reprocessed to be sent to the fatherland, the gold. The rest of the people, so the people would have put on a little uh, hand-drawn carriage and taken into the ovens. They were placed into the crematoriums and killed there and their ashes would be thrown all over the ground. Now back to my arrival. I, we arrive, we have to disrobe, undress, they shave our head, bald, all our body hair. From there they escort us into what was told is a shower. It was nothing more than an empty room with about 50 shower heads screwed on into the ceiling and a trickle of water would reach your dirty body. There was no soap, there was no towel, there was no clean underwear or clean clothing. From here they went to another room that had tons of garments in there, they threw a garment at you, it was ill-fitting, whatever, took away your shoes, and for shoes they gave you uh, wooden sole flip-flops. Now we could not recognize one another, literally could not recognize even your best friend. So the only way we learned how to deal with that at that point, we would look into each other's eyes and start talking, and between the look and the voice we could connect. After a while somehow you get acclimated to it, but at the beginning that it was. So now we are put into a large room, totally empty. You see when they built Birkenau, it was 100% designated to be a transition to the crematorium, anybody who entered there. Therefore, 
when you see other Auschwitz related photos in Auschwitz proper, you will see the prisoners on a, some kind of a wooden bunk bed. We had nothing. It was nothing more than a big room with a wooden floor. That's it. So even that was scientifically figured out because the room would hold about 200 people lying down. They managed to get in 500. If you visualize the sardines in the can, how they were, that's how we were laid down row by row. Our wooden flip-flops would be our pillows and the body heat next to you would be your blanket. Ironically, we were not allowed to go to a bathroom outdoors. Now, I used the wrong terminology. It wasn't a bathroom. It is called the latrines. A latrine is nothing more than a giant hole dug in the ground and a wooden plank across it with a, with a circle carved and that's your toilet. There was no paper, there was no uh, water, there was no soap, that was your toilet. But ironically for the night they put two, three buckets in the corner and that was our toilet. Morning comes at the crack of dawn as we were unwashed in the dirty clothes out to be counted. That was one of the treacherous, torturous things. What we had to do is line up five abreast. Now there was an older prisoner in charge of us, 500. She was responsible of counting us. So we are the 500. Now where in heaven's name would have gone out, you'll never know. But they kept counting us over and over again. Then would come a Nazi soldier and recount us like three of your five abreast or one, two, you know. But the, the, the important part here is that it wasn't done just one time. It was maybe two, three times a day. Now once we exited the sleeping quarters, we were no longer permitted to go indoors until bedtime. So we were wandering in a designated dirty, filthy ground area from one corner to the other. There wasn't a blade of grass, there was no trees, there was no shade. It is summer already. My light-skinned friends were getting horrendous sunburns. Uh, it was like ants crawling all over and we could not step out of the designated area. And to this day I cannot understand the continuous draw counting. Now think about it. We were counted. There were Nazi women guards with a police dog with them every so many yards. There were watchtowers with soldiers aiming a machine gun at us. The entire camp was surrounded by electrified barbed wire fence. Now where in heaven's name would we have gone to when we looked like hell as it is? But they kept counting us. Now as time progressed many of our colleagues were getting ill because if they were on some kind of medication prior to this, there was no such thing as medicine. They took your eyeglasses, they took the eyeglasses away from you. And some of them were getting really sick. And we were too much afraid to go into the clinic because that was the entry to death. Nobody came back from there. All right. So what we have improvised, there would be two people and two people and the sick one we would put in the middle and we would literally hold up that sick person 
to be counted. Afterwards she could drop dead, but had to be counted. So this was one horrendous part in Auschwitz proper. We are there a couple of days and we keep seeing heavy smoke coming out of this chimney. I mean black, horrendous black smoke. And then we smelled something. You know when you kill a chicken and you want to get the feather off so you, the feather, you put it over a flame and it's burning? That kind of smell we kept smelling but who had time to analyze what that is? So as time when we asked one of the old timers, could you tell us how soon we're going to see our relatives who went the other way? Inevitably they would raise their fingers, point at the chimneys and say it very calmly, that's where they are. And we were absolutely in denial. How could that happen? you lying? How can you tell? This is the 20th century. We come from a civilized country. There's no such a thing as burning people alive. But there it was. It was an unbelievable sight. And like I mentioned earlier, the Hungarian transfer got the full treatment of expediency. And as such, those burning crematorium flames were going day in, day out, at night, 24-7. Sometimes one of the chambers would break down and, you know, they couldn't handle the influx of people. So it was very, very, very hard to accept and we still had some ray of hope that maybe, maybe just a chance that we'll see our family, but unfortunately that has never come. There's one other important part in the Auschwitz era and that is the selection, which is a totally different meaning than what we're using in our everyday language. Selection meant that the Nazi officers would come into the courtyard, you had to disrobe halfway and I guarantee you they were not looking for our physical beauty but they were looking for the upper body strength and the selection meant that they would select two groups of selectees. One group would be disposed of right away because they looked weak or whatever their logic was or there was enough room in the crematorium. I will never know exactly. And the other group was to live. Well, obviously I ended up in the other group and now came an expedient departure out of Auschwitz. They put us on a train, a thousand of us Hungarian Jewish women, and we were shipped to an ammunition factory in a town in Allendorf, which is between Marburg and Kassel in Germany. And there we were housed in an old deserted army barrack. So our living conditions, if you want to call that, has improved a tad because now we were army barracks which had bunk beds and they gave us a horrendously itchy horse blanket and straws and that's all we slept on. And each room had like 16 sleeping quarters, and we even had a table and chairs, and ironically we even had a uh, locker, but we had nothing to put into the locker. Our job at, at the factory manufactured rockets and bombs, and our job was to fill the empty bombshell 
with a highly poisonous liquid material that lock it and then two people had to ship the heavy bomb to a warehouse location. It was an exceptionally hard work. And here again it's ironic because most of us were between age 16 to 22. We have never seen a factory, let alone work in a factory. But you'd be surprised how fast you, have to, you can learn when you are, it's forced upon you. We had to put in 12 hours a day with very, very little food and constant supervision, uh, both from uh, local factory personnel as well as our, our Nazi guards. In here, we were working one week day shift, one week night shift. So basically, we never saw daylight. Now here I want to point out something interesting that the average people would not know. The factory was built underground. So the roof was flat, it was sodded, and it had tr trees growing out of it. So when the Allies reconnaissance planes would be looking for factories or whatever sources, they would see a beautiful wooded meadow. However, we were right in there. And we were doing this job into about three, four months, or no, more of a more, about six months after that we arrived. And we look at each other, and by this time our hair was starting to grow out crooked size. And now, if your hair was black, now it is orange, the face is lemon yellow, and the lips are deep, dark purple. What has taken place? We were working with highly poisonous material without any protective garments. So it started invading our body. But the good Lord was with us because the end was in the near. And at the end of March, the leader of the camp received an order to put us on a death march to Buchenwald, which was now the closest location. So as we were, we had only a thin spring coat, no stockings, and they put us on the highway system, the freeway system, open air. I never ever want to be cold again, or hungry, or thirsty. We marched for three solid days. We slept in the wet, on the wet ground in the ditches, and on the third day, we arrived in a village area, farmland area, and we have noticed that there were less Nazi women guards present as they were when we started out. Evidently, they were trying to escape to their own home, to, to their families, or whatever the reason. So now, a group of us stand near the field there, and you start fantasizing. The only way we kept our sanity was in fantasy. We talked about poetry, we talked about history, we talked about uh, uh, recipes, family life, in order to get our mind away from reality. So at this point, a group of us are standing and we notice in the, on this farm a barn, but pretty far, about maybe a, two city blocks away or something like that. And now, you know, the fantasy starts again. 
How would it be if tonight we're going to escape and hide in the barn? See, here is the important point. Our self-esteem was zero. So what, they capture us, they kill us, it will be all over. This is the whole point here. But it worked. One by one we crawled and arrived to our destination. Dirty, filthy, smelly barn, didn't really matter. And we were, of course, shaking in our boots because of the obvious reason. But the next day we looked out through the little peephole and we saw two men in strange uniform coming towards us. And it turned out to be two scouts from the 6th Armored Division of the U.S. Army, God bless every one of them, and they were our liberators. So, in conclusion of the journey, I can say five words. In no time at all, I lost my home, my country, I became an orphan, I had no country to go to, I didn't have a penny to my name, and I wasn't quite 18 years old. So life continues, and through many, many wonderful volunteers, and God bless every one of them, because there were many people who helped me get back on my feet and reach this stage. So, as far as my biggest concern today is, the influx of deniers because today in this high-tech world you click on Auschwitz, you click on concentration camp, I mean the original authentic documents of every phase of it. There was a um, Bad Arlson where the Nazis collected all the Auschwitz data. So that's authentic Signatures. Matter of fact, I know someone who found his own signature among the files there. So, there are the deniers. So, I came up with something uh, uh, in my presentations, and I'm going to read it to you. The remarks that our wonderful General Eisenhower at the time made when he liberated one of the worst camps in Germany, and he saw thousands and thousands of dead or emaciated bodies on this camp. He summoned his soldiers and he told them, take as many photographs as you can because the world will not believe this. So this is his, his comments. I have never felt able to describe my emotional reaction when I first came face to face with indisputable evidence of Nazi brutality and ruthless disregard of every shred of decency. I visited every nook and cranny of the camp because I felt it my duty to be in a position from then on to testify at first hand about these things in case, in case there ever grew up at home the belief or assumption that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. This is our President of the United States, a most credible individual. So if you don't believe my story, I certainly hope that you believe our President's comments.
Just enough time for a quick science report, and brace yourselves, because this one's a doozy. Many of you are probably aware of a video that's been making the rounds on Facebook and elsewhere in which a young woman claims to explain how paleontology is done. Of course, everyone in my Facebook feed was face-palming, ridiculing, and laughing at this young woman, but that's not necessarily the reaction she's getting overall. The YouTube video in question has nearly half a million views so far, and the Facebook fan page for the group that created it, called Christians Against Dinosaurs, has nearly 16,000 members. So why is this so upsetting? Well, wait until you hear what she has to say. I'll play a few highlights, but let me describe what you'll see in the video first. There's a young woman whose name I've learned is Kristen sitting in front of a table speaking directly to the camera. She begins by introducing the topic and saying she wants to talk about how fossils are found and how they're dealt with by scientists. In front of her is a picture of a dinosaur that looks like it was drawn by a second grader. But then again, I should talk because I can't draw either. Um, so a fossil is not actually a piece of bone. A fossil is actually um, a bone that was once in the ground that has been then filled with limestone, calcium, and other kind of stone-like deposits over the course of many, many years. And at the end of the day, it ends up looking like a bone, but it's not really a bone. So far, so good. It's true that depending upon the age of the fossil, Nearly all the organic material, or maybe all of it, has been lost, leaving deposits that mimic the shape of the original bone, or sometimes nearby deposits might have a depression of skin or feathers that have eroded, etc. Now her exact words were, at the end of the day, it ends up looking like a bone, but it's not really a bone. Those words become important as the video continues. So you have a rock this big, and you say, okay, inside this rock this big. There's a bunch of fossils. Here you go. And you hand the rock off to a paleontologist. And the paleontologist takes a little mallet and they chip away at it. And at some point, they come out with something looking like a bone. And that's a fossil. Now, the first fossil that was ever found was actually after they came up with the idea of a dinosaur. Right. That seems a little bit far-fetched, right? Why would the bone that was found or the fossil that was found actually be the exact same thing as what was originally hypothesized without any other evidence? Now that's just ridiculous. Humans have been digging up fossils probably as long as there have been humans on the planet. I mean, does she think people just left the soil completely untouched until a scientist came along and proposed that dinosaurs once existed? In fact, I remember reading as a kid that the Chinese, as far back as 300 BC, were finding and collecting dinosaur bones, and that that might be part of the origin of the dragon mythology there. 
At this point, Kristen brings out a plastic cup filled with very small bits of something resembling plaster and pours them out onto the table in front of her. Most of them are about the size of a small stone, and a lot of the matter has been pummeled into dust. Here, you're my paleontologist. Turn that into what it was before I ripped it apart. Here. You can have some spackle, too. As much spackle as you want. Here, turn this. into what it's supposed to be. All right. Who knows what you're going to come up with, right? Now, here, take this same substance, this same sample, and, by the way, it's supposed to be this little guy, Brachiosaurus, who's 40 meters tall. Make your Brachiosaurus skull. That and as much spatula. Chances are, what are you going to come up with? If you want to keep your job, you come up with a brachiosaurus skull. When millions of dollars are on the line, which one are you going to do? My guess is you're going to go with the brachiosaurus. That's where the money is. I hope this was insightful for what happens on a daily basis in the world of paleontology. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you next time. Well, it certainly was insightful, but not for what paleontologists do. It was insightful in that it tells me that this woman has been woefully misled about one, the motivations of scientists, and two, how the science of paleontology actually works. You'll remember that earlier I mentioned that Kristen makes the following statement. Um, so a fossil is not actually a piece of bone. And at the end of the day it ends up looking like a bone, but it's not really a bone. Right. So instead of trying to piece together a disintegrated fossil, as was the case with her cup of dust and rocks, paleontologists put together the pieces that have, by some miracle, survived the erosion process and remained intact. Bones, after all, have telltale signs of where they connect, and we have living specimens that give us a good template by which to start hypothesizing about whether the thing we dug up was a femur or an ulna or a vertebra or a metatarsal or whatever. Paleontologists can also tell from something as simple as a tooth and part of a jawbone what the animal might have eaten, some of the other features of its skull and face, and even what species it might be. They are not, as this young woman seems to suggest, just shooting from the hip. Or would it be shooting from the hip bone in this case? And they're certainly not chiseling out some random parts of rock to create the entire creature. I mean, can you imagine how much time that would take? And can you imagine the end result? Even if you manage to make an entire creature out of stone, which isn't impossible when you consider what sculpting masters like Rodin were able to do, it would be such an obvious fake that they'd be laughed out of the profession. But you don't have to take my word for it. That's because, against my better judgment, I subjected my friend and famed anthropologist Eugenie Scott to this video and asked for her input. Here's what Jeannie had to say. My God, that was painful. I tried very hard to find something accurate in this video, and I think charitably we can say that that was actually spackle. When you have so many misconceptions and misunderstandings about the foundations of a field, 
It's difficult to say that there's any logic to the presentation at all. You said you wanted me to comment on her logic. She believes that paleontologists are totally free to assemble fossil remains any way they want, which betrays a real misunderstanding of the field of comparative anatomy and morphology. I've run into this myself. Creationists complain about Lucy not being a complete skeleton, since she has a right arm but no left, and a left leg but no right, etc. Forgetting or not understanding that if you know what the right arm looked like, you also know what the left arm looked like, since primates are bilaterally symmetrical. But by the principles of comparative anatomy, you also know what you won't find. If you know the forelimb had a grasping hand, you know the hind limb won't be a hoof, for example, because the genetics affecting limb development doesn't work that way, and on and on. Come to think of it, I guess you can have a forelimb with a grasping hand and a hind limb with a hoof, but only if you've uncovered the fossil of a centaur. Unlikely. Have you heard the good news? Now here's something we hope you'll really like. My name is Amanda Duval and I'm bringing you the good news. Today I'm going to be talking about one Sherry Tenpenny, someone who's supposed to be a doctor from the United States, widely known for her anti-vaccination stance. She had plans to come to Australia on a tour to deliver lectures warning parents not to vaccinate their children and apparently has written many books and regularly delivered seminars which she says are the ne negative impacts of vaccines on health. She even believes in vaccines causing autism and has said that a meeting in 2000 at a public charity anti-vaccination advocacy group is what led her to investigate the truth about vaccines. A little bit about Dr Tenpenny. Apparently she is actually a real doctor, it's not a pretend or a imagined title. Graduating from the University of Toledo, she received her medical training uh, well, there you go, at Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine in Missouri. After her medical school, she served in the emergency department director at a regional hospital for 12 years. She has a medical centre that claims to deliver holistic medical care without the use of pharmaceutical drugs. She's widely known in the United States for her outspoken views on vaccination and regularly delivers lectures and attends seminars on the subject as well as other parts of integrative and alternative medicine. Her website says that it contains a wealth of information that you won't find in a paediatrics office, so obviously not including science or any form of actual medical advice whatsoever. Unfortunately, she's also written two books, one being saying no to vaccines is promoted as a comprehensive guide which explains why vaccines are detrimental to yours and your child's health and discusses vaccine injuries such as autism, asthma, ADHD and autoimmune disorders. Her second book is Foul, Bird Flu. It's not what you think. It's, it suggests that avian influenza is linked to vaccination and labels it as an act of ongoing world government 
drama. There you go, the conspiracy theory. Her first book rejects the argument supporting vaccination, stating that causal links between vaccines and conditions such as autism have not been disproven and recommends ways to legally avoid vaccinations. That second book links smallpox, typhoid and diphtheria vaccinations to the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918, polio vaccinations to the Asian flu outbreak in 1954 and pre-deployment vaccinations to the Hong Kong flu in 1968. She believes that parents should not be forced to make decisions based on fear. Well, how about decisions based on science? Here's a radical idea. In an article that she wrote on 10 reasons not to say no to vaccines in 2011, she warned that each shot is a Russian roulette. You never know which chamber has a bullet that could kill you. (sighs) So in her tour, she decided that she was going to, of course, try to come and do this on a tourist visa. But not only the sceptic community in Australia, concerned parents, concerned non-parents or concerned citizens and those in the Stop the Anti-Vaccination Network were concerned about this. So we decided to do some good old-fashioned sceptic activism and lobby and, and protest her coming to Australia. Protest was done in a non-violent and non-aggressive way and it was done towards uh, the venues, letting them know, as well as parliamentarians, the type of person this this woman is and the message that she's actually given. What has resulted from this is that venues had started to pull out, citing that they were not aware of the situation, not aware of the message that was going to be given in these talks and pressure was put on the politicians, so her tour was cancelled. The drama continues because Tenpenny couldn't just go away. Oh no, 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 no. She decided to conduct media interviews, she decided to write on her website and do blog posts about her. she had to cancel due to fears of attacks made by anti-free speech terrorists, apparently hell-bent on causing harm. Well, the small problem about this was that there were no threats from those who did protest. The only reported threat made was by an anti-vaccination nutjob who threatened to cause harm and blow up venues. Yeah, don't even know what they thought would be achieved from that. She has also gone on to whine about free speech and how it was taken away and they have the right to deliver their message. Well, boo-hoo, Tenpenny. You have the right to do your free speech anytime you want. You can go to any mountaintop, any pub, whatever. No one is taking that away. However, it does not give you the right to deliver your message without criticism, without challenge, and without some good old-fashioned science being thrown in your face. It is so tiring when these people decide to trot out the free speech red herring, which is an excuse to enable them to pass on their harmful message. What about the freedom of the children and people who are physically and emotionally affected by your anti-vaccination crackpot views and those who are currently grieving the deaths of their loved ones from your message? You have the right to talk about whatever you want However, you do not have the right to do it without challenge or criticism. So, 
thank you very much. We don't need to hear your message. Back to America you go. Thank you very much for listening. This is The Good News. Thanks for listening to episode two of Shell Shocked. Before we sign off, a lot has happened since our Virgin episode last week. You can now like us on a Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash shellshockedpodcast, and we're also available in the iTunes store so you can subscribe to us there. As always, new episodes will be housed on my website at sheldonhelms.com slash shellshocked, which is also where you can see extra links and show notes. Thanks to all our fans for spreading the word and for helping to get even more folks listening to us. Lastly, if you happen to be near Fremont, California on the evening of Friday, April 3rd, please consider joining all of your fellow Bay Area friends for a private screening of An Honest Liar, the documentary film about the life of famed magician-turned-skeptic James Randi. Our screening will also feature an appearance by co-director of the film, Tyler Meesom, will be holding a Q&A after the show. For tickets and more information, visit my website at sheldonhelms.com slash speaker series. Thanks again, and we'll see you all next week. Until then, you've been shell-shocked.